This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Interesting weekend in the United States where it seems like we might finally get an idea of who's going to be in control when things resume. Let's find out what happened. Joining us now is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So we're almost a week past the midterms, but something significant happened on the weekend. What is that? There was a significant development uh, over the weekend, and that was uh, that Democrats maintained their control and will continue to maintain control of the Senate after two uh, states that had been held up with delays in uh, in vote tabulations uh, made it so that Democrats uh, would keep their control. Democrat in Arizona, Mark Kelly, won his race. Incumbent uh, uh, Senator Ka- uh, uh, Cortez Masto in Nevada also won her race. And what it means is that as of now, Democrats hold... 50 seats. There is still a runoff to come in Georgia, which could give Democrats 51 seats, a little bit more wiggle room there. But at the end of the day, that kind of red wave that was expected uh, across the country didn't really materialize and definitely did not materialize in the Senate. Okay, so in the Senate, we know where things stand. Uh, There's one more to come, though, right? We still haven't figured out Georgia. You know, there are questions as to kind of how this is going to play out now. Are we going to see Republicans really kind of rush to the defense of Herschel Walker, given the fact that uh, it no longer means that control is on the line? Or are we going to see Democrats kind of flood the state with uh, high powered political names along with uh, money to ensure that Raphael Warnock wins? Because with 51, they're no longer going to need the vice president to constantly break votes. But it also kind of gives that little bit of leeway there so that someone like Joe Manchin, who's kind of a more conservative Democrat from West Virginia, he might not be able to hold the party's agenda hostage to what he wants because ultimately there would be one more Democrat. So it's still important for Democrats, but it is now not um, essential for, right. for them to win Georgia. What about the campaigning, though? Like, are there are, which side is going all out for Georgia? Well, I mean, look, Democrats are are definitely going all out. Republicans are trying to figure out if it is worth it. There is going to be a lot of expense needed in order to prop up a candidate that much of the state has already uh, said was flawed. And some of the party has actually said uh, is a flawed candidate and is also a Trump-backed candidate. And if more money and more Republican voices go into Georgia and yet another kind of Trump candidate loses, it's going to cause a little bit more soul-searching that's already underway across that party as to what are we doing? Why do we continue to kind of thrust ourselves at the mercy of what Donald Trump thinks is right? Okay, so that's the Senate situation. What I noticed about the House of Representatives, Reggie, is that it ended up being a lot closer than I think a lot of people thought it was going to be. Yeah. I mean, look, the polls leading up to the midterms, at least the October polls had suggested that there might be a kind of not, you know, red wave in the way that it could be, you know, dozens upon dozens of Republican gained seats. But it could have been within that, you know, 10, 11, 12 seats that were gained by Republicans. And ultimately what we've seen here are the projections being kind of closer to where those August polls were. And the Republican majority might be 
two, three, uh, two or three seats, uh, and that could obviously pose problems for the Republican agenda. That could lead to fighting within the party as to who is going to be able to, you know, muster up the, the biggest uh, bit of strength to kind of control how the agenda moves forward, potentially with investigations. But at the end of the day, there were a lot of high-profile losses in the House again. Trump. Uh, backed candidates. Uh, and this, again, has the, the Republican Party questioning, are we moving in the right direction? And I think over the next two years, possibly even over the next 24 hours before a Trump announcement, uh, we could see the Republican Party start to try and you know, dig deeper to say, what's going on here? Right. The Trump announcement. He's still going ahead with that. He is, uh, you know, appara- uh, reportedly still going ahead with it. Uh, you know, there are apparently some prepared m- uh, remarks that have already been seen by some uh, of the media outlets, and they don't do things like name Mike Pence or, or, or Ron DeSantis. It's kind of going to thrust everyone back into the 2016 feels about how kind of grieved Donald Trump is with the way that America uh, is moving. Uh, and, and look, Republicans are, are conflicted as to whether or not this should be an announcement that takes place. There is still uh, a broad majority within the party itself and obviously within the base that will follow along with Donald Trump. But again, given the track record that we just saw play out in the midterm elections, there are real concerns here that if he winds up being the nominee for the party and say Joe Biden runs again, do Republicans really run the risk of losing again to what will be America's oldest president? Right. Okay. Now, uh, one other question thing that we're, is all the counting done when in terms of like all the races? No, there is lots of counting that still needs to, to come. Uh, officials in uh, Nevada said that there are still something between forty and 100,000 ballots that need to be counted between uh, the counties where Tempe and Phoenix are, and that could take until Wednesday or Thursday, which will you know determine some of those House races. The counting is obviously still underway in Arizona's gubernatorial race, where the Democrat is leading just kind of by a hair. And then California, it could take days and days. There are still um, nearly a dozen seats that still need to be determined for the House. And that, again, could become the make or break. Do we see a very slim Republican majority? Do we see a potential very slim Democratic majority in the House? When you've got a couple of dozen races still to be called, anything could happen over the next couple of days. You talked about kind of Republican leadership here, Reggie. How much has this kind of failure last Tuesday impacted them? Is there looking to be a changing of the guard on that front? Well, I mean, in the House, at least, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican minority uh, leader right now, he is poised to become speaker if Republicans get that majority. But there are concerns within uh, the conference that he might not be up to task, that he might still be too close to Donald Trump. And there could be a bit of a revolt within the party and he might not get the votes. Uh, you know, so the House is, is up in the air in the Senate. There are serious questions among some of the Republican senators as to whether Mitch McConnell should remain in his leadership position. He's obviously clashed with Donald Trump a number of times, uh, including over what took place on January 6th. Then again, given the fact that uh, uh, Mitch McConnell came out and kind of criticized both the Republican Party and Donald Trump for saying that it was you know bad candidates that were put forward, and that's why Republicans didn't win. He didn't win himself any favors with the former president or with the kind of senior members and some junior members within the Senate. So Republicans could see an overhaul in the coming weeks. Right. I also noticed that Mike Pence is talking, the former vice president, saying some things about that January 6th event. 
Yeah, I mean, look, these are these are not things that Mike Pence hasn't said in the past already, and that you know what, what he had to do, uh, you know, w- when it came to certifying the votes, that this was a ceremonial uh, duty, it was a constitutional duty, but he couldn't flip the results, and he called out uh, Donald Trump in an interview with ABC News, saying that Donald Trump was a part of the problem, really trying to kind of solidify himself with what remains of the mainstream conservative base within the Republican Party, potentially setting himself up to be a contender in 2024 to go up against his former boss, but some people who may find themselves aligned with uh, Donald Trump, you know, uh, Mike Pence kind of taking that path that we see Liz Cheney follow where, you know, old school Republicans, you know, need to kind of get the party back. But to speak out against Donald Trump, it goes to show that these are two men who are no longer aligned with each other, despite the fact that they ran on the same ticket and stayed together for four years. Okay, so right now it sounds like everybody's in a holding pattern waiting to see what this big announcement is tomorrow, although we suspect we know what it is. We suspect that we are going to hear Donald Trump announce his candidacy for 2024. And I think once the kind of, you know, uh, bluster of that wears out, the question becomes who is going to run against him? Are we going to immediately see a Ron DeSantis announcement that he is going to run against Donald Trump? Trump says that he kind of appointed DeSantis to that position. DeSantis says that he can do this on his own. He doesn't need Donald Trump. Uh, At the end of the day, Republicans can only choose one person. Do they go with, you know, Trumpism or Trump light? Or is Trump no longer in the picture? We will see. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent with the latest on the midterms. Yeah, the votes are still being counted or just finally figured out some of the important races there over the weekend. So the Senate will stay in Democratic control and really only about eight seats separating the two parties in the House of Representatives, too. So fascinating results there and all waiting for tomorrow when the former president says he has a big announcement to make. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi. There are millions of Canadians who deal with a diabetes diagnosis. And if you have it, you know it impacts every part of your life. It's a lot of people who deal with this. So the news that we may be closer than you think to finding a cure will definitely be welcome for a lot of people out there. But how close are we actually? Well, Vancouver-based BC Diabetes lead doctor is optimistic that they are close. Dr. Tom Elliott is with us now, a Vancouver endocrinologist, and is working in partnership with UBC and Leadership Sinai in Toronto to find that cure for type 1 diabetes. Dr. Elliott, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. It's, it's great to be on your show. Can you tell me, first of all, a bit about your research? What have you been working on? Well, we've, we're working on all sorts of things in diabetes. Um, in type 1 diabetes, which is juvenile onset typically coming on, under the age of 35. We've been using a drug called ustekinumab that's been widely used in arthritis and colitis to induce remissions. We've been using that in people within the first 100 days of their diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. And we've had some very interesting early results suggesting that it might eliminate the requirement for insulin in these people if given early enough. So, so what we're looking for now are, are new recruits for this study 
Simi. We hope your listeners will spread the word. And, uh, you know, quite apart from the study, there is a great deal of uh, optimism about diabetes. You know, at DC Diabetes, we call diabetes a condition, not a disease, because really it's just a matter of management. And with the right advice, access to the to medication and devices, we think that everybody can live comfortably and well and not fear their diabetes. Right. But you mentioned it depends on how early they can start this treatment. So how early does it have to be? Well, it's within the first 100 days. So, uh, you know, it takes us a week or two to get to get things launched. So if any of your listeners, are, let's say they're under 90 days, so if they were diagnosed in, you know, in August, we, we, we can take them in our study. Okay, so that is if you have been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes since August, you want to talk to them? Yes, please. And how can they get in touch with you? Well, they can email info at bcdiabetes.ca. They can call 604-960-1347. We, we'll get straight back to them if they do that. So tell me about how what it is about this medication then that makes a difference. How is it doing this? Well, type 1 diabetes is caused by the immune system destroying the cells that make insulin. The, these cells are called beta cells. We're born with 10 billion of them. And once 80% of those cells have been destroyed by the immune system, there's not enough insulin to control sugar. Sugar starts to rise. People get symptomatic. They, they lose weight. They're drinking, peeing a lot and drinking a lot. And, and what this medication does is that it stops the destruction of the cells. So we think we can pause the destruction, but, you know, that would be great. That would just uh, reduce the amount of insulin required. The real hope is that we can regenerate those insulin-secreting cells. So climb up from 2 billion up to 4 or 5 or 6 or even more so that insulin is not required to, uh, to manage the diabetes. Right. So if we can make these leaps then, this progress, Dr. Elliott, with type 1 diabetes, how can we then make these leaps with type 2 diabetes? Well, type 2 diabetes is a different animal. It, it's, the body doesn't make enough insulin, but the, the lack of insulin is due to the aging process. And the leaner and the more physically fit we are, the better our insulin works. So type 2 diabetes is all about lifestyle, in particular low-carb, low-glycemic index diets, and then medication, and, and eventually insulin in many people. But, you know, Simi, the, the big message with type 2 is, is the power of a low-carb diet. And do you think that message, like, are, are Canadians getting that message about that because type 2 is so much more controllable? Well, I, I, I hope they are. And, and, you know, having me on your show, I think, is, 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 is moving in that direction. Yeah, and, and, and technology is also a big deal. So there are devices called continuous glucose monitors that, uh, that in, people can go out. They, there's, there's one called a, um, a Freestyle Libre. And people can wear it, and it'll show them their sugar every five minutes. And it will teach them what works, you know, what what foodstuffs are good, which ones are bad, you know, what what sort of exercise helps me. And those things can really help with the behavior modification. In the old days, you know, doctors used to say, eat, eat less and exercise more. Well, that, that, you know, that's useless. We really want to know what our bodies can handle. And people discover very quickly that white food, you know, 
bread, rice, pasta, noodles, potato. Those are the things that our bodies can't handle, so we need to cut back on those and fill up on grains and brown food and beans and nuts and vegetables. Those are the things that work best in in diabetes. And, of course, meat is is okay as well. Right. So for type 2, that's one thing. So getting back to the discussion on type 1 then here, how far away are we then from a breakthrough where you can foresee this to have a completely different situation if you're diagnosed with type 1? Well, I I want to be, you know, I'm an inherent optimist, so I I want to be realistic. I I think, you know, we always said 10 years, 10 years, 10 years. I, I think it's definitely within 10 years, perhaps five years. So um, the the drugs are effective. We just need to find the right drug, and perhaps we've already found it, and then get the right dosing intervals uh, right. And, it, you know, it will probably mean taking medication for life. So we need to convince our, um, our health authorities to, to cover the cost of these medications. So, you know, all of these factors play into when, you know, when we can say that we've got a cure. Right. And then, you know, Simi, with, with, with people, people who've had type 1 diabetes for more than 100 days, maybe a few years even, there are technological cures for them with using uh, artificial insulin delivery, so-called artificial pancreas. Um, there are studies uh, looking at implanting uh, cells into people's bodies who, who've had diabetes for many years. These studies also look very favorable. So, you know whether you've got diabetes in the first 100 days or 5 or 20 or 30 years, I think the outlook is is very positive. What an exciting time, Dr. Elliot, to be involved in all this research. It it, it sure is, Simi. That's amazing. Every day I'm excited about it. Yeah, I can see why. So before we let you go, let me ask you one more time. You need people to get in touch with you if they have been diagnosed with type 1 uh, since August. And once again, tell us how they can do that. They can uh, email info, I-N-F-O, at bcdiabetes.ca or call 604-960-1347. I hope you can get some more people on this. Dr. Elliot, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Simi. Bye. That's Dr. Tom Elliott, a Vancouver endocrinologist who is working in partnership with UBC and Leadership Sinai in Toronto. They are working towards, you know, finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. That is amazing. But right now they're still recruiting people for this clinical trial that they are doing. So far, this clinical trial has shown some very promising results. So you heard him say there, if you or someone you know has been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes since August. They have that 90-day window. You're still in it. They would love to talk to you to see if they can get you involved in their ongoing study that they have doing this. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the empty homes tax has now been around for a few years, since 2017. And as of 2022, it stands at 5% of an assessed home's value. Now, remember, it was meant to address homes that are left empty for more than six months in a given tax year. Now, that part sounded simple, right? But what is still happening is that people are being caught in it and being asked to pay it when really they shouldn't be, that there's usually extenuating circumstances. And now cities across the country are actually copying Vancouver's empty homes tax or the same mistakes being repeated. Well, Francis Bula, the Urban Affairs Contributor for the Global Mail newspaper, joins us now to talk more about this. Hi, Francis. Hi. 
So let's talk about this. So are more cities looking at Vancouver's example here? Uh, well, for sure, um, a, a number of cities in Ontario are. And uh, I was just looking at, um, there's a tax law firm uh, in Canada that's really monitoring this. And they've talked about how Ottawa and um, Toronto already have it in place. The next city to get on the bandwagon will be Hamilton uh, and then London and Windsor, Halton, Durham, Peel and York regions are all moving towards that. So it is something that's um, looking very attractive to a number of Ontario jurisdictions for sure. Interesting. Now, you've got a great piece about this in the Global Mail this morning. What are the problems here? Like, are they just copying the entire Vancouver language on this? Yeah, and that's the concern is that, uh, you know, Vancouver and the province of BC, to a certain extent, they really have uh, led the way in North America, uh, and well, particularly in Canada on this. And so um, people who are jurisdictions that are looking to do uh, some kind of empty homes tax, they're just looking at Vancouver and saying, okay, we'll do the same thing. It seems to be working for them. Okay, and, and you managed to find quite a few people where it's not working for them. Yeah, uh, no, and it was interesting. I didn't even go looking for them. They came looking for me. Um, but, you know, there are all kinds of cases where it's people who, they're saying, we understand what the principle is, but, you know, you're catching the wrong people. Um, and as you know, in my story, uh, it was one uh, family, Iranian family, that had their parents in the house for seven months while their parents were waiting for a pre-sale condo. They had moved out because they were waiting for a demolition permit. Everything got slowed up by the pandemic. They put the, their parents in the house uh, and the city didn't want to accept it because the utility bills were still in the children's names, which is totally understandable. You're not, you know, you're not yeah. going to switch it over to some newcomers to Canada. Uh, and no matter what they offer else, they offered as proof, you know, neighbors saying, yes, the parents were living there, um, shopping bills from the area on their parents' credit cards. The city didn't at first didn't want to accept it. They ultimately did. But it took a lot of time and a certain amount of money and a, a lot of stress. And then one that I found really interesting, because I would have never thought this, but Someone who was in his apartment for five months and then Japan the rest of the year had rented to a niece uh, and she was there for three months, but then left early because of the pandemic. So to me, that qualified like the, the place was occupied for more than six months of the year. You'd think that would mean they don't pay. Right. But you would think. But you would think. But because he was only there for five months, he wasn't there for six and the niece wasn't there for the full other six months, they charged him originally. He did appeal and he did win that. But again, it's just the stress and the hassle. And we're talking about like pretty significant bills, you know, uh, $17,000, $50,000 I heard for one um, man who's been trying to get a... um, a rezoning uh, application for his property and he keeps being told by staff to wait until some new plan comes in. Uh, but then now they're charging him the empty homes tax because he hasn't put anything in, even though he did it on the recommendation of staff. So just some very confusing situation. That's a common one though, isn't it, Francis? Like people who yes. are waiting for permits on something and then getting dinged mm-hmm. and they're like, this is not our fault. Yeah. No, no, very messy. Um, they either have a development permit application in, but it's taking a long time. I think that 
that's the city will sort of accept that. But, you know, anyone who's built anything, and I think you have, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You know that you spend at least a year negotiating with the city before you put in your development permit application. So that's a whole year where on paper, it looks like you don't have a development permit application in, but you're actually working on it. Yeah, that's um, so the part people that like gets that me. are getting dinged. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so there, is there any flexibility on the part of the city here to deal with these cases? Do they recognize this? It's hard to tell. Like they are getting a lot of appeals of uh, the, that what they're assessed. And, you know, people who have been critical of, of uh, Vancouver say one of the, there's two big problems. One is they're doing what's called a wide audit rather than targeting people where there's been a phone call or there's something definitely suspicious, they're just doing 4% of all properties. So then they're catching a bunch of people where it's just, you know, they end up having to go through a rigmarole to prove that um, they didn't, uh, that they, it was legitimately occupied. The other thing that happens is if you don't file on time, you're deemed to be non-compliant and you're assessed the fine, the penalty. And then you, so then you have to fight it, which is a very unusual way to proceed. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's, those two things are uh, what people say uh, lead to the problems. Then the inflexibility kind of gets baked in um, because you're doing so many audits uh, right. and uh, people, and, and city staff just start, you know, sort of denying everything and you end up with all of these fights. What do you, like, clearly, though, what got me about your story is the number of people you spoke to who still said they get it. They get why the tax is there to begin with. Yeah, they're not. I mean, there is a group of people in the city uh, who say this tax is unfair. It's being levied against people who, you know, are using um like they have a condo in the city because they need to visit for medical reasons or they visit for family reasons or whatever. And they've always objected to the tax saying it wasn't meant to catch people like this. It was meant to catch sort of speculators and investors. And so they think that the whole tax should be redefined. These people weren't necessarily saying that they were saying, we understand what it's all about. We get it. It's just that, you know, you've caught us in some bureaucratic glitch here. Oh, it's crazy. Francis, thank you so much for that. Well, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it gets changed under the new council. And next year is when they go up to 5%, which is a pretty hefty bill. This year it's 3%, next year 5 Ooh. So uh, it'll make people even more antsy about, uh, you know, potentially getting dinged with this. Uh, we sure will be hearing these stories. Francis, thanks for your time this morning. Okay, have a good morning. You too. That's Frances Bula, Urban Affairs contributor for the Globe and Mail newspaper. Read her latest piece about the empty homes tax. It's been so successful, the idea of it here in Vancouver, that it's now being copied in cities, particularly in southern Ontario, saying they like this. Problem is they're copying the language too, which is usually what happens, right? But the fact that it's so broad here in Vancouver and it still catches a lot of people who really shouldn't get caught up in the empty homes tax. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, a year ago, our next guest was probably crazy busy. Because a year ago, we were seeing some of the worst flooding we had ever seen in the Fraser Valley. And it was devastating for people, for livestock, for wildlife. So let's find out what Kevin Estrada was doing. He is director with the Fraser Valley Angling Guides. Kevin, thanks for being back with us. 
Thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to you when there isn't some kind of urgent emergency going on out there. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been a pretty crazy difference in, in weather this year. We've got the, I think, the lowest records ever uh, for water on the Fraser River. So you went from, you know, being able to pilot your boat through, you know, Highway 1, which was full of water, to this year you're saying that there's like record low amounts of water. What's that been like for angling guides? Um, well, just for for our businesses and for guiding, you just got to be a little more careful on the on the river. But uh, you know, with the local knowledge and and uh, the guys that have been running the river for a long time, it's uh, it's just a little bit more got to be on your toes. But um, yeah, it's definitely a different uh, view out there on the river, and and a lot of different things out there that we haven't seen before. Yeah, let's talk about then what it was like a year ago. What were you and, and other guides like you doing? Well, we were we were doing everything that we could, right? I mean, at the very beginning, we didn't really know what was going on. And, uh, I, you know, that started from trying to save fish to put them back into the creeks, into the river. And uh, and then it was people trapped in hope and, and getting them out by boat to the Fraser River. And, um, you know, it was it was saving animals, people. Uh, and then we kind of moved to the Sumas Flats and, and helped a lot of people there. And so... It was basically doing absolutely everything that we could um, at the time with the resources that we had. I remember that there was so much concern at that time, particularly about fish like sturgeon. What what was that like, trying to make sure that they were in kind of the area, the river that they were supposed to be in? Yeah, well, we would get calls from anybody that was out there or even helicopter pilots that had been flying over. And, and there was one that, that made the news that was behind Hurley um, that we rescued. And then... And then there was a bunch near Barrowtown that uh, had gotten the back slew there. And so we were uh, moving them from uh, from there back into uh, back into where they should be. And so there was that, but there was also lots of salmon, right? And salmon, you know, neander through, uh, you know, a little bit of sloughs and ditches that you don't really, really think of, right? And so when it floods and everything bumps up, they were on the main road throughout, uh, throughout Chilliwack. And so... Um, we were doing our best to try and rescue them as well, and uh, yeah, it was it was it was different than anything that any of us had ever seen, and and we adapted to what we could, right? That was the amazing part about it, right? Is seeing everybody kind of adapt to that. Kevin, do you think that the salmon have they also adapted? Like, what kind of impact do you think has resulted from that last year, or has everything recovered? Well, we would we won't know that right for a few years and on on how those impacts were, but uh, you know based on you know this year for even for sturgeon, uh, they were very healthy. Uh, this was a big sockeye year run, a four year run, so they've been feeding really well. And so uh, as of right now, I mean things look pretty good. Um, but for the returning salmon, we won't know for for a few years. Yeah, have we learned any lessons? I know that. Last year for you and your members, it was kind of like ad hoc. It was whoever could do it, you jumped in. Are there any lessons that we've learned since then that if we had to do it again, we'd do it differently? Yeah, I'd love to write a book on it. (laughs) Tell us more. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I think there was a lot of positives from it. You know, there's there's organizations like Global Medic that we didn't know of that does great work that helped us, United Way, uh, even, you know, local MP. Uh, Mark Straw was very supportive with us uh, and the public, right? Um, they were very good. Everybody was calling us to try and help us with gas or donations for equipment and stuff like that. Um, you know, and I think that that was very rewarding and and, um, and good to see. And then some of the, the, you know, the ad hoc stuff was, I think the governments were paralyzed, right? The federal government and the provincial government and even EMBC, you know, they 
they didn't know what to do. Right. And so, um, and so that was sort of a frustrating part for us and, and that never really got resolved with them, uh, with them helping organizations, not just ours, but others that were on the ground doing the work, right. Despite the promises. So I think, you know, um, there's a lot that can be learned and ho- hopefully that, uh, you know, if there is an next one, which, you know, eventually I'm sure there will be that, that, uh, that we're more prepared. So what would be the top things that you think need to change in case there is a next one? What needs to be done? Um, well, I think they're working on infrastructure right now, um, but uh, definitely immediate financial uh, help and coverage on liability that uh, for people that are risking their lives and their equipment to go out there to actually help and save people, uh, animals and so on, um, that needs to be done immediately so that uh, there's no holdups and then, and you know, people aren't uh, scrounging around trying to find money and, and fuel to, to get the job done. Um, and nothing gets nothing gets done without people on the ground, and so that, those resources need to get to people immediately. And then from there, um, having the export knowledge and and local knowledge to help with that would be uh, would be probably sufficient to to get yourself through whatever that is, right? So, do you think that we've learned lessons? Like, have the people in charge learned lessons? Have residents learned lessons about how to protect themselves if this happens again? Uh, I think definitely the residents have, yeah. Um, I think everybody helped pretty well and, 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 and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, when it comes to higher level officials in government, I mean, you, every few years you've got some new people in, right? So is there a learning, another learning curve for the next group of people? I don't know. But, um, you know, anytime when there's delays like that that we saw on the ground, that can definitely affect uh, lives, right? And so you want to kind of cut the red tape and, and get through there as quick as you can on, on helping. And I'm just, you know, so thankful even looking back at it, that we had so many great people working in the community, get it done no matter what it took. Right. And that's, you know, I think that's indicative of all natural disasters anywhere in the world is people just come together. So it, uh, reflecting back now, it's, it's a pretty amazing moment in my life. And I think a lot of other people's lives that uh, we came together like that. It really was. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for that. Thanks for the follow-up. That's Kevin Estrada, director with the Fraser Valley Angling Guides. They were doing anything and everything during the flooding last year, whether it was helping livestock to higher ground, transporting people from Hope, you know, to uh, the parts of Highway 1 that were flooded over to the other side so people could get cancer treatment. You name it, they did it. And it was really remarkable to see. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, already we've just had an election in Surrey, right across the province. You had municipal elections, and there was a lot of talk about policing in Surrey during that election. In fact, there was a lot of talk on policing in Surrey during the previous election, too. So do you need to have another one? Do you need to have another election in Surrey where the only subject is policing? Well, one councillor thinks so, and Councillor Linda Annis is with us now to talk about that. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us about what you're proposing. Well, I think it's time that we engage more uh, in a much better way with the residents of Surrey. We have done a dismal job involving them with the decision-making process around this police transition, and it's been a hugely divisive uh, topic. Nobody really knows how much it costs, where we're going with it, or why we're doing it. We need to get the facts on the table and let the residents decide once and for all so that we can get on with business at City Hall. Okay, so you are proposing a referendum just on the issue of policing. Is that right? That's correct. It's something I've been advocating for since I was elected and even as part of my election platform in 2018. 
Okay. And so what makes you think now is different that maybe this will get more traction this time? Well, it's here we go again. It's exactly the same thing that happened when Doug McCallum got elected. He pushed through the Surrey Police Service, and now Brenda Locke is pushing through, uh, transitioning back to the RCMP. We need to get the facts. We have no idea how much this has cost so far, how many officers have been hired. We're getting numbers all over the place. We have no idea what it would cost to go back to the RCMP. Let's put the facts on the table. Let's put a pause get the facts, and then let the residents make a decision once and for all and then move forward and get on with the business at, that we need to be doing at the City of Surrey. Now, Councillor Annis, I understand that you've also written to Minister Mike Farnworth. What was that about? Well, I wrote to him uh, asking him to step in and make us do a referendum so that we can get on with this because this shouldn't be a political football Who knows, in another four years, whatever direction we go now, we could change it again in another four years. It's a very costly undertaking, and we need to get it right and stay the course. And I really hope that Minister Farmworth will step in and make this happen for us. Okay, and you know what? In this past election, then, Councillor Annis, did you not think that policing was the number one issue already? I know we talked to every you know, major candidate for mayor in Surrey, and that was the topic that we discussed. It absolutely was the topic, and Brenda Locke uh, was successful in getting in, but I might add that... Uh, 72% of the residents of Surrey did not vote for Brenda Locke. So she does not have a clear mandate to be moving forward with uh, the reversal back to the RCMP. What I heard loud and clear when I was knocking on doors and talking to the residents of Surrey was, where are we at with this? Are we, are we too far down the road? Can we even go back? What would it cost to go back? How much have we spent today? None of those answers could I answer, nor could Brenda Locke. We need to get the facts on the table before we start making a decision of this magnitude. Right. This would have to happen quickly, though, wouldn't it? Because it does seem like already the policing situation is in limbo. It is in limbo, and we've got to stop this. We need to just take a pause and get the facts. Uh, I've heard numbers all over the place that we've already spent $100 million, $200 million, who knows. Um, but this is taxpayers' money, and we're not spending it wisely when we keep reversing things. We need to figure out where we're at and then stay the course after the residents of Surrey have spoken. And what is happening at this council meeting today? What is it that councillors will be talking about when it comes to policing? Well, we're asked to choose two options, whether or not we want to go with the RCMP or whether or not we want to stay the course for the Surrey Police Service. And to me, I think I would like to, re- I shouldn't say I think, I would like to refer this back to staff and have them add a third option, and that is that we do a referendum. Clearly, this whole matter has become hugely divisive in the community. We need to settle it all for once and for all and get on with it. All right, so that's going to be discussed today, but how do you anticipate that's going to go, given the new makeup of council? Well, uh, Brenda Locke has said to her councillors that they can vote independently of each other, that they don't need to vote as a block. And I hope that they all have a look at this and remember whose money it is that we're spending. It's not theirs. It's not mine. It's the taxpayers. The taxpayers have every right to know where we are at with this transition, how much it's going to cost, and how much it would cost to go back to the RCMP. Let's get the facts on the table and make an informed decision, not a rash decision. All right. What have you heard then about this? Like in your position as counselor, do you have more information that the general public doesn't have? Like what are the costs associated with this? 
I have no idea, nor do any of the other council members. So you can only imagine what the residents know, which is virtually nothing. They know that this is happening. There's been no public engagement with them, and both Brenda Locke, myself, and all of the other councillors ran on improving public engagement and transparency at City Hall, and this is not a good example of public engagement and transparency. It's just pushing the issue through. Okay, so will you be bringing forward a motion on this? Uh, What I will be doing is referring this report back to staff and asking them to add a third option for consideration, and that's uh, including the opportunity for a referendum for the residents of Surrey. Hmm. Have you talked to any of the other councils on this? Like, do Do you know if they would support this idea? I know that some would absolutely for sure. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That is Linda Annis, councillor in Surrey, talking about the policing situation there. And she is saying that, you know, we've had two elections now where the idea of like policing in Surrey has kind of ping-ponged back and forth, whether it was the election of Doug McCallum in 2018 and now Brenda Locke in 2022. But she's saying that in the end, when you look at the number of people who voted uh, and, you know, actually turned out for it and all the other issues going on, She's saying that, you know what, we need to have an actual referendum in Surrey where the issue and the only issue being discussed is policing. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to go through, right? You have to see, you have to get the other councillors on board for that. But what do you think? Residents of Surrey, has this been decided in your mind? Or do you think, no, let's do this. We should have a referendum just on this. There's so much confusion. I can understand your frustration. If you're a Surrey resident now, you'd think, just Tell us what is this going to cost? You can't get even you can't even get an answer on that number on what it's going to cost to eliminate the Surrey Police Service and potentially go back to the RCMP. You know what? The whole thing has been shrouded in too much kind of manipulation and and secrecy for residents in Surrey to actually get an idea on what is going on there. So your frustration is absolutely understandable. So where do you stand on this? Councillor Linda Annis says the city needs a referendum just on the issue of policing. Is that something you would support to say, yes, let's do this once and for all? Or do you think, no, we, we just voted in a municipal election and that was what I voted for? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com.